I'm Jack Hughes. I'm new here. <laughs> no, uh, we, we got back safely, but uh, on the flight, I sat in the back of the plane surrounded by coughing, hacking people. They got me. So I was able to get through the wedding and the funeral, and Saturday night, my voice went on vacation. So it's still trying to come back, but I think it's good enough to get the job done this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. And uh, um, we're going to be looking at Jesus's admonition to produce fruit or get the axe. Now, usually I start off with a little bit of context of the passage, and this morning we're not going to do that until we get into the first point. We're going to save the context of the first point. Uh, the parable is really self-contained. If you remember, a parable is a, a story that is a real-life situation. It's something that could actually happen um, in real life. Unlike a metaphor, uh, metaphors are often things that can happen in real life. And usually every detail of a metaphor has a secondary or spiritual meaning. But that's not always the case in a parable. And one of the difficulties in interpreting parables is trying to find out which parts of the parable actually have a spiritual parallel and which do not. But let's just look here at Luke 13 verses 6 through 9. Follow along as I read. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit in it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit in this fig tree. Without finding any, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for your, um, for this year too, until I dig around it and put fertilizer And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now, from this parable, those who don't know Christ as their Savior are confronted with three truths to drive them to the place where they can see the danger they are in so that they will hopefully repent, be saved, and escape the acts of God's judgment. That is the whole emphasis of the parable. It's mostly a believer uh, or non-believer oriented parable, though uh, it does have some principles here that apply to all of us. Jesus is working um, to get people saved. Now, if you notice, he says, and he began telling this parable and he was telling them of this um, this parable because of what happened in the first five verses of Luke 13, and if you remember that, he gave two illustrations, said basically the same thing twice. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. It's not just great sinners who die in this life, but everyone dies and then comes the judgment. And unless you repent in this life, you will perish for all eternity in hell. So he has just said that. Now, if you remember in verses in Luke 11 through 14, all the way through 13, nine is one day in the life of Jesus. Jesus is uh, started out doing a miracle. Some accused him of doing it by the power of Satan. Others said, well, could we see something a little bigger and better? And so Jesus rebukes them, he confronts them, he admonishes them, he gives them parables, he he does everything. He tries everything. He confronts the religious leaders, he gets them mad at him, he warns his disciples not to fear men, he rebukes the crowd, he threatens. I mean, he's doing everything he can. These people need saved. Jesus is going to die in Jerusalem. He knows this gigantic crowd has been following him because he's becoming a novelty. But people are coming to him for the wrong reasons. They're coming to be entertained. They're coming to be wowed by the miracle. They're coming to have an experience and they're not coming to see the Messiah. Realize they are sinners in, in, in need of salvation, realizing that judgment is going to come upon them and to repent and believe. And instead, they're, they're just hard hearted. And so Jesus gives this last little parable after he tells them in very clear, 
plain and simple words. If you don't repent, you are going to perish in hell. And he tells them that twice. And so this parable is kind of like the wiping the, the, the dust off his feet, um, saying, listen, this is it. There's a guy with a parable. And then he tells this story <laughs> to make sure their blood is not on his head. And he says here that a man had a fig tree, verse six, which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit in it and did not find any. And here we have our first principle. The Lord is watching to see if you are going to bear fruit in your life. Here, the man plants this fig tree in his vineyard and a vineyard was usually surrounded by a wall, kind of like that was on that picture. There are usually stone walls or around the vineyard. This is to keep people from, you know, know that this was the border and to don't cross over. And this is my property and this is my vineyard and stay out and to keep animals that would dig around the vines from digging around the vines. There is usually a tower located somewhere in the vineyard so that the, the vineyard keeper and or keepers could stay in that tower, keep an eye on things to make sure the vineyard was taken care of because grapes were um, a very valuable crop. In this vineyard is planted a fig tree. And, uh, um, you know, the guy wants some, I don't know, make ancient Near Eastern fig newtons or figgy pudding. I don't know, whatever you do with figs. Um, He wants to, he wants figs. And uh, so he planted a fig tree. It's kind of understandable that if you planted a fig tree, um, you want figs. And notice verse six says, and he came looking for fruit on it. And this is a uh, an active participle, which means he came. He kept looking for fruit on it. I don't know. Um, some of you, I'm sure, have orange trees. And you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but a lot of times there's two crops of oranges on one tree. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes there's flowers. And then there are ripe oranges or there's green oranges and then there's ripe oranges. They're on the tree at the same time, two crops at the same time. So you can even see the next year's crop on your tree when the crop you're picking uh, is there too. Well, fig trees are kind of like that, but you can sometimes see three crops on a tree. There was early figs and the late figs. And so sometimes you would have blossoms. Figs that were in the process of getting ripe and those that were ripe. So for that reason, you could come to a fig tree at any time of the year, even if there were no ripe figs, there would always be figs if it was a fruit bearing tree. It was very easy to see. So this man has come and he's looking to see if the tree has figs on it. Verse seven tells us he's done this for three years and there's nothing there. Now, you know, when you plant a young tree, you don't expect it to have this bumper crop, you know, and if it doesn't have any fruit the first year, it's like, okay. And then the next year, you know, you should get a little bit. And the third year, you should start getting a crop. Well, we need to ask ourselves, well, who does, first of all, this owner of the vineyard represent and who is um, the fig tree? I think it's pretty clear that the owner is God, pretty much in all the parables, the master, the owner is God or Christ. And uh, here uh, he comes looking for figs. Where in his vineyard and where would that be? Well, I think uh, he's talking about Israel or Israelites, but really anybody, as we shall get into the see as we get into the parable, anybody who is planted into this world, who is sustained by God's grace, has the purpose of existing for producing fruit for God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And how do we glorify God? By producing fruit for him. Now, what do we mean uh, by fruit? Well, if you were to um, do a survey in the New Testament and you were to look up various texts, you would see that fruit is really obeying God, doing what God wants you to do or not do. Um, for instance, in Romans fifteen twenty eight, Paul speaks of believers financially giving to the ministry as uh, bearing fruit for the ministry. 
So you just gave and many of you by giving were bearing fruit. That's one way you can bear fruit. Uh, Galatians speaks of the fruit of the spirit. You know, most of us uh, have this memorized, you know, the fruit of the spirit is. And then he gives the list, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, um, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things are the fruit of the spirit. They are godly characteristics that come out of your life as the result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Um, you, you go through the scriptures, for instance, in Ephesians five, verses eight through ten. Um, uh, Paul says that uh, w- walking in all goodness or walking in all righteousness or walking in all truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. These are ways that we produce fruit. Not only that, in Colossians chapter one, verses nine through twelve, um, uh, Paul praises them because they are filled with the knowledge of his will, that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, trying to please him, trying to bear fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And what you discover when you combine all of these texts together, that bearing fruit is one, uh, really a combination of things. One is growing in the knowledge of God's word. And secondly, obeying God's word out of love for God with a desire to bring him glory. I mean, that sums up all fruit bearing, whether it be giving, serving, teaching, you know, folding bulletins, whatever, watching kids, um, helping clean up, set up chairs, praying for people, encouraging people, whatever it is. That's part of what God wants you to do. Now, if you're in grade school, you know, if you're in junior high, if you're in high school, God is watching you. The owner here is watching because he wants to see if there's going to be fruit and God is watching you. He's looking to see that you obey your parents. He's looking to see that you stand up for Christ at school. He's looking to see that you're not going to get swayed by the peer pressure of those who don't love God. God is watching you. If you were in college, God wants to see you live for his glory. He wants you in that class when the professor says, oh, the Bible is false. And he wants you to raise your hand and say, no, it's not. Every word of it is true. And then the professor says, that is so stupid. No, no, that's not what the scriptures say. The person who denies God is the fool. But I might not get a good grade. You'll get a good grade with God. (laughs) Those of you who are married with children, God is wanting you to produce fruit in those children. He wants you to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He wants them to teach you, teach them how to respect authority, how to obey, how to submit, how to work hard, how to leave home. (laughs) Some of them are saying, amen. And if you're a senior citizen and an empty nester, God is watching you to see how you're going to use your time and your resources now that you have resources and time like never before. And the knowledge that you have accumulated all of your life from parenting, from experiencing life, from sitting under good teaching. God is watching you. He wants you to bear good fruit. He wants you to bear good fruit. And so the first thing that we need to remember here is that God is watching you. You know, some people think, you know, well, you know, um, I don't know if, you know, I should do this because somebody might catch me. You're always caught. You're always caught. Listen to what Psalm 139 says. Think about this. This is such a good truth to remember Whenever you're thinking of doing something and not getting caught. Psalm 139 verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the earth or the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. The light around me will be night. Even darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You know what that means? God sees you. God sees you. That's good if you're going through a trial and you need God. But if you want to sin, sometimes you wish God didn't see you. But he does. 
You can do things that other people don't see. You can never do anything that God doesn't see. And this is a great hedge, a great motivation to not do things. You know, and when you see, for instance, in, you know, the Old Testament, you see David committing adultery with Bathsheba. And well, who is he thinking about? He's thinking about himself. He's eyeing her. He calls for her. He commits adultery. Then you see Joseph. Who's he thinking about? God. God's watching. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? What he was saying is God's watching right now. I'm not sinning with you, Potiphar's wife, because God is watching. Hebrews 4.13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom he have to do. You know, have you ever seen a beehive in a tree? You know, or maybe in an attic or something. You see all those bees going in and there. Don't you just like what it wonder? I wonder what's going up in there. I wonder what's happening. I wonder what the honeycomb looks like. Don't you just kind of see that? I remember going to the museum and there's this really cool display where they had this beehive out there and it was glass or plexiglass. And then they had this little tube that went outside the building, thankfully. And you could see the bees walking up and down the tube and you could see them inside the hive. That was so cool. Or maybe an ant farm. You know, usually you just see a crack in the sidewalk and they go in there. And you're wondering, I wonder what their tunnels look like. Don't you want to know that? <laughs> and ant farms are cool because you can see all the little tunnels. Well, we can't see things, but God always sees things. He sees into every beehive. He sees into every ant tunnel and he sees into every heart. Do you remember when Saul sinned and Samuel, the prophet was kind of like, you know, Lord, you do, I mean, you know, kind of nice. The guy, he's kind of a good king. Look, he's tall. He's handsome. And remember what God said? God said, first Samuel 16, seven, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him for God does not see. As a man see, men look at the outward appearance, but I look where? At the heart, and I see a rotten heart in there, in that man. He is rotten on the inside. So I have rejected him. So we need to remember that God is watching us. And we don't need to make sure we don't fool ourselves into thinking that we can pretend to be Christians and that God somehow doesn't notice that he doesn't see the lack of fruit in our life or doesn't see that in our heart we're rotten. He sees it. You may be able to fool us and I'm sure you have, but you can't fool God. Secondly, what if the person is sitting out there right now. What if you're one of those people right now who's like, oh man, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I I can't even see a raisin. I don't even think I have a shriveled raisin in my life, you know? There's a dried blueberry. There's nothing. There's nothing on my tree. Well, there's good news and there's bad news. And the good news comes first. And that is the Lord is merciful and waiting for sinners to produce fruit. Look at verse seven. And he said to the vineyard keeper, and remember the vineyard keeper here is the gardener. The question in who does this vineyard keeper represent? Some people have said it represents Christ who intercedes for sinners. The problem is almost all those texts on intercession relate to believers. He intercedes for believers. Uh, he does, of course, he did come to seek and save the lost. And you could say that he's laboring in God's vineyard to try and bring people to repentance, which is true. But it may be the vineyard keeper is just not, it's not, he's not really critical to the interpretation of the parable. It's about the owner and the fig tree, not about the vineyard keeper. And the owner wants the tree to produce figs. So whether it represents Christ or not, I don't know. It doesn't really make any difference. But we have this fig tree and we have it not producing fruit. And the vineyard keeper comes to the owner and the owner has said for three years, I've come looking for the fruit and I don't see any. And so cut the thing down. Now, 
the the owner isn't being rash here. He's not, you know, saying, listen, no, three years, cut out. The owner knows about fig trees. He knows that by the second and third year, there should be some sort of visible crop on the tree. It's obvious. You should be able to see that. And so he knows that this tree is a bad tree. Alfred Edersheim in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah said, quote, fig trees were regarded as so valuable to cut them down if they even yielded a small measure of fruit was popularly deemed to deserve death by the hand of God. That they liked fig trees. I don't know what they did with them, but man, they loved them. <laughs> but there are some who profess to be Christians who hang around the assembly of believers who are barren trees. They say they love Christ. They say they know Jesus. They call themselves Christians, but you look at their life. There's no fruit. I mean, there's no more fruit in their life than there is the fruit of your average unbeliever in the workplace. We have a lot of figless trees in this generation. And some have thought that, well, what makes me a true fruit bearing tree is I'm a moral person. No, the Pharisees were moral. That doesn't make you a Christian. Some have thought, well, I am a Christian because I profess to believe in Jesus. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian either. You know, and some people say, well, surely, you know, I could produce fruit in my life if I was like a disciple of Christ, if I was one of those extra zealous, higher level Christians, but not everybody has to do that. I believe and that's enough. Besides, says another, I'm still a student living at home and surely the Lord doesn't want me to go to school and sports and produce fruit for him. Or another person says, well, I'm off to the university. I have to study. I have to get good grades. You know, I've got to get a good job so I can make a lot of money. And then, of course, once I get settled down after college, I, I can produce fruit. And then the person who's a parent chimes in and says, listen, raising children is hard work. I mean, you're shuttling them around. You're feeding them the dishes, the diapers. It's a nightmare. And so when they grow up and leave the home, then I can produce fruit. And then when they leave the home, there's others who say, you know what, man, I've worked hard all of my life and it's time to relax. And I'm too old to produce fruit. Now I will let the young people do it. And so there's people from all different sectors in the church, from all different ages, from all different stages in life who have a reason why they can't produce fruit for God. But it's just an excuse. And the owner says, deal with this problem in a quick and expedient way. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And the phrase here, cut it down, I think is obvious, judgment. The phrase use up the ground means to render something inoperative or useless. You've got this tree, its leaves are shading the ground, nothing else can grow under it. It's got roots, it's sucking up moisture, it's sucking up nutrients, it's taking up space. Why does it even use up the ground? I mean, why are we growing this barren tree in our vineyard? It's worthless, is what he's saying. Well, look at verse eight, the vineyard keeper appeals to the owner of the vineyard and answer and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. The word fertilizer is literally manure. Let me put some steer manure under it so that see if we can kind of, you know, give it extra nutrients to see if maybe then it will produce fruit. And. The owner says, okay. And what this tells us is that God is merciful. Three years was sufficient. Three years was sufficient. But now the owner is extending extra grace to this barren fruit tree. The mercy of God is what holds back the wrath of God from instantly consuming us. It goes like this. God is perfectly just. Men are sinners. God must punish sin. He punishes sin by casting sinners into hell. We're all sinners. We all deserve to go to hell. Why aren't we in hell? The mercy of God. 
That's why some texts say by grace, you have been saved and other texts save us. He did not like Titus three, five. He did not save us because of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but by his what mercy mercy is what holds back the dam of his righteous justice, which as Jesus said in chapter 12, verse 49 longs to destroy those who hate him. But mercy holds back the judgment of God so that grace can intervene and a sinner can come to repentance. And here, that barren fig tree, which represents anybody who isn't producing fruit for God, the owner gets the axe and says, let's cut it down. And the vineyard keeper says, can we just like wait one more year? All right. One more season and then the axe. You know, there's a lot of people here who have gone on for quite a long time with no fruit. Fruitless trees. The gardener pleads one more year. Fruit is still expected. Fruit is expected. Fruit is demanded. The principle here is certain. God is willing to extend mercy. And anybody who is alive right now, everybody who is not in hell right now, is alive because of the mercy of God. And God expects them to produce fruit for his glory according to his word, out of love for him and a desire to give him glory. And he has a right to. He created us. He owns us. God wants us to obey him. And if you don't produce spiritual fruit, if you don't have enough fruit to even justify your existence, why would God keep you around? Now, Jesus isn't saying this. He isn't saying, make sure you do enough good work so you can earn your way to heaven. No. He isn't saying, listen, if you're saved and you quit producing fruit, you lose your salvation and go to hell. He isn't saying that either. He's saying true conversion produces fruit in a person's life. I mean, isn't that what the scriptures teach? You know, a lot of people have this idea that whenever you talk about obeying God, it's like, well, you aren't talking about grace anymore. Yes, you are because you are not only saved by grace. You grow in godliness by that same grace, right? Isn't that what Ephesians two, eight and nine says for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves gift of God, not a result of works and no one should boast for we who have been saved are in Christ Jesus. And we have been created for what good works that we should what walk in them saved by grace to walk in good works. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? Titus chapter two, verse 14 He talks about in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness. And then he goes down to explain that Jesus redeemed us from every lawless deed to sanctify himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, saved by grace for good deeds. Not saved by good deeds, saved for good deeds. So good deeds then are the fruit on the tree of a person's life, which indicate they know Christ. No fruit, no salvation. Not because the fruit saves them, but because salvation produces fruit. Isn't that what John the Baptist said? Matthew 3, 8. He says to the religious leaders who come to him to be baptized, bring forth fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. First repent, believe, then bear the fruit. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 17, every true, every good tree produces good fruit. He went on to say in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And again, he's not saying salvation is by works. He's saying salvation produces good works. Thomas Watson, in a sermon on Psalm chapter or Psalm one, verse two, called the the um, 
saying spiritual delight makes this important observation. I was just reading this this week and I thought, oh, Lord, I'm so glad I came across this. You know, sometimes I'm just, I was just reading the book. I mean, you know, just for fun. Um, I try and read to my kids, but they just don't like Puritan sermons. I don't know why. Um, they all kind of get busy when I say, you want me to read you a sermon? And they say, no. Um, But what's interesting here is he makes this good observation. He says that negative godliness is no assurance that we are truly Christians. And I thought, negative godliness, what is that? And he went on to explain. What he means is not doing certain things is no assurance that we are saved. A tree with no fruit is not an assurance that it is fruit bearing, right? I mean, what did the Pharisees say in Luke 18 when he sees the tax collector on his knees, beating his breast, asking God for mercy? Do you remember what he said? I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. He was putting confidence in what he wasn't. Not what he was. Merely being a tree doesn't make you fruitful. There must be fruit bearing Watson says, quote, it is not enough for the servant of the vineyard that he did no hurt there. He did not break the trees or destroy the hedges. If he does not work in the vineyard, he loses his pay. It is not enough for say at the last day that we have done no hurt or lived in no gross sin. But what good have we done in God's vineyard? End quote. What good are you? Why is God sustaining you right now? Watson goes on to say, quote, you may be as far from grace as from vice. Think about that. Though none can say that your eye is black, yet your soul may be. Though your hands are not working iniquity, your heads may be plotting it. A man may not be morally evil, yet not be spiritually good. He may be free from gross enormity, yet full of secret enmity against God. He who does not bear good fruit is as well fuel for hell as he who bears bad. One may as well die with not eating food as with eating poison. A ground may as well be spoiled for want of good seed as for having tares sown in it. Therefore, let no man build his hope for heaven upon negatives. End quote. That is good. That is so good. Because a lot of times you talk to people and say, so how'd you come to know Christ? Oh, well, I grew up in the church. Oh, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, you know, I've never killed anybody. Never robbed a bank. And all of a sudden, they're like the Pharisee who is so glad he is not like other people because of what he doesn't do. Well, granted, Christians don't do those things, but they also produce fruit they produce fruit jesus is portraying this owner of the vineyard he sees the fig tree he sees it's got a trunk and leaves there's just no fruit and if you have been in church for many years and yet do not bear fruit you are in danger friend you are in danger you are in serious danger Because the longer you can sit in church and bear no fruit, the harder your heart becomes. If if the truth doesn't change you, if the truth doesn't move you, if it doesn't convict you to action and you keep hardening your heart, it will make you like granite. Some people ask me, Jack, man, you are so psychotic when you preach the gospel. You know, I mean, you just you're just like. You just like go after people every week. Of course I do. Why? Because we have oak trees with no acorns. 
We have old, twisted, gnarled apple trees with no apples. Huge stately palms with no dates. I'm trying to get some fruit. (laughs) I want fruit. I know it comes through the gospel. But I can't make them bear fruit. That's only something God can do. But I know what God uses. So I till ground. But what are those who are planted into this world, who have an opportunity to hear the gospel, who the people in Jesus is speaking to, they even get to see the miracles. And then they just say, you know, I just would prefer not to produce fruit. What about them? Well, they're going to get the ax unless they produce fruit. Look at verse nine. The vineyard keeper is still speaking to the owner and he, he says, listen, just one more season. Owner says, all right. And he says, and then after one more season, fourth season, if it doesn't produce fruit, then we'll cut her down. A picture of judgment over and over a picture of judgment. This Last winter, I purchased three bare root fruit trees. And a bare root tree is, uh, they're pretty ugly if you don't know what it is. They, they grow trees in tree places or whatever. And, and then they dig them out of the ground. And then all the roots are there. And then they just get some clippers and they snip off all the roots. And so there's just a couple little roots. It's like a stick with just a couple stumpy roots at the end. It looks pretty pathetic. You wonder, is this thing even going to grow? And so you buy this stick and you take it and you put it in your yard and water it. And then you wonder, you watch, you know, and you see what happens. But actually, all three of these nectarine trees that I planted um, began to bud out in the spring. And uh, I got all of the three kind on purpose because I thought, you know, we'll, we'll plant three of the same kind. So they all bear fruit at the same time. And then that way we can can them up because I don't know if you've, had canned nectarines before they're good you you get them you blanch them you pull off the skins you take the pit out of them you pack them inside a quart jars you put light syrup on there can them and then you put them in the refrigerator and you let them get really cold and on a hot summer day they are to die for (laughs) so i'm looking for nectarines now What's interesting is, is when the trees all bloom, the middle tree, they all look identical. I mean, they're sticks with flowers on them, okay? The one in the middle is interesting because the flowers are just a slightly darker shade of pink. And I think, that is interesting. And I thought, you know, maybe the sun is shining on the other two, so they kind of bleached out. Or maybe this one bloomed later, so the the blossoms are darker. And I didn't think anything about it. And then when they started putting leaves on, I noticed that that middle tree seemed to have a little darker and longer leaves. They looked identical, but they were a little darker and they were a little longer. And I thought, you know, maybe there's just better fertilizer in that spot. And then I began to go to prune them. And I discovered a peach on that nectarine tree. (laughs) Now, Nectarines are actually hybrids of peaches, so they, they hybridize them so they don't have any fuzz on them. So they're very close. The leaves are similar and their blossoms are similar. Now, I know most of you probably aren't gardeners or horticulturists or botanists, but let me just ask you for this advice. You give, me, you give me this advice. How long should I let that peach tree remain in my yard waiting for it to produce nectarines? You see, you're out there going, hello, (laughs) Jack, you could leave that thing in your yard forever. It's never going to produce nectarines. It is a peach tree. You have given it sufficient time to bring forth the fruit of what it really is. And it's never going to be a nectarine. Well, some people have been sitting under the teaching of God's word for years and haven't borne any fruit, not even a raisin. And you have to ask yourself, 
how long should we wait? I mean, wouldn't it be just for God to cut them down right now? Charles Spurgeon commenting on our text in a sermon entitled Judgment Threatening and Mercy Spurring says this about barren fig trees. Quote, you yourself could not well complain of being cut down for you do not think much of your own soul. You are not concerned about its salvation. You trifle with its best interests. Why should you expect another to value you at a higher rate than you have set upon yourself? You fling away your soul for passing joys. You neglect a great salvation. You live in daily disobedience against God who alone can do you good. And even the preaching of the gospel, that all powerful engine seems to have no effect upon you because you despise your own self. Well, man, if God despises you too, commands his angels to cut you down, you cannot complain. It is but reasonable that God should estimate you at your own price and weigh you in your own balances, end quote. And so it is. And so it is. There are many professing Christians who deserve to be cut down. Everybody deserves to be cut down. I mean, they have a name tag on them that they're nectarines, but they're not. They're not. And some have sat under the teaching of God's word for 5, 10, 15, 20, 40, 50 years. Still, God's looking for fruit. And do you see why judgment is reasonable? Do you see why it's reasonable? Why speedy judgment is reasonable? Spurgeon gives these Observations one cutting down a fruitless person is the surest and least costly way to deal with them. Secondly, sufficient time has already been extended for them to repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Third, though more time has already been given, they still produce no fruit. In fact, mercy has had the opposite effect upon them. Instead of making them humble and repentant, it has made them proud, presumptuous, and to even deny the justice of God. For they give no glory to God and hence have no reason for existing in this world any longer. Five, God has already given a great deal to sustain them in this world and yet they still produce no fruit. He gives a little example and says, what if you're sitting outside a nice summer day and some gnat is buzzing around your face? What do you do with that gnat? You try and kill it, right? Now, what if you said, well, all creatures are God's creatures. And so you said, shoo, shoo, and you had mercy on the gnat. And then what if it bit you on the neck and then bit you on the forehead and then bit you on the ear? What would you do? You crushed the life out of it. (laughs) And rightly so, right? And yet the people who will not come to repentance, though they sit under the teaching of God's word, though they hear the gospel preached, what are they doing? They're stinging God. They're despising God's mercy. They're spitting in God's face and saying, you aren't going to judge me. You've never judged anybody. I can continue on. I'll get saved what I want to. I'll wait until later. I'll wait until my deathbed. I'll do what I want. And it's a wonder that God does not crush them. Six. Spurgeon says for the fruitless person is using up resources that someone else would be glad to use for God's glory. Seven, the fruitless person is being an ungodly influence, an example in the church and world, encouraging others to be fruitless just like themselves. So why would God keep them from the axe? There is no logical, rational reason. That's the whole point that Jesus is making. If you don't repent, you're going to get the axe. Jesus said in John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. Opportunity. Yes. Rejected. Yes. Consequence. Fire. John the Baptist, Luke 3, 9, said to the religious leaders, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Over and over in the gospel, Jesus uses the same example. John the Baptist uses the same example, compares people to trees, no fruit, axe, judgment. And there's two kinds of fruitless trees. There are those people who just bear no fruit. They come, listen, and never obey. 
These are those that Ezekiel speaks of in Ezekiel 33 verses 31 and 32, where Ezekiel was a great preacher. They love to hear Ezekiel preach. They come to you as a people come, sit before you as my people, hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouths and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. They're sitting under the preaching of God's word by a great prophet. And they'll actually like it. Man, isn't he great? Doesn't he just tell it like it is? Doesn't he just get right in your face? Yeah. Well, let's go sin. That's what they're doing. Now, there's another kind of fruitless tree. And that is the kind that appears to have fruit on it. You ever gone to one of those department stores and you think, oh, man, nice fruit bowl. And you're thinking, are those real? And you kind of reach over there and you grab the banana and you go, oh, it's hollow. It's plastic. Or maybe you're in a restaurant and they have all those nice desserts and you look and you go, are those real? And you find out they're made out of wax. You know, you would never eat one of those. And if you were smart, you wouldn't eat one. Um, They're inedible. Well, there are people who appear from the outside to look genuine. They come to church, they're like those in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, have we not? And then they tell the Lord all that they did in defense of their thought that they deserve to go to heaven. Jesus, of course, sees through them. He sees that their fruit is fake fruit. Jude speaks of these in verses 12 and 13 of his little book. These are the men who are hidden wreaths in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. You look at these things, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go into this nice, calm cove and it's nice and peaceful. You drive up there and it rips the whole of your boat out. It's not a pier. What it, its appearance is deceitful. It's not what it appears to be. He talks about clouds without water. Oh, here it comes. We're going to get some rain. It just passes by. No water ever falls. A tree with no fruit. Why does it take up the ground? Wild waves of the sea, only producing foam and froth, worthless for anything. And wandering stars. You're out in the middle of the ocean, you need to navigate. You pull out your sexton to get a fix on the North Star, and it, it's gone. It's moved around. Where's the Big Dipper? Where's all the stars? They're moving. See, those kind of stars don't do anybody any good. They may look like stars are moving. So every example he gives are examples of people who appear to have some good in them, but don't. They have plastic fruit in their life. And some people have lots of plastic fruit. And you know what? We can't even tell the difference. We don't know that their motives are wrong, that their intentions are wrong, that they're doing it for their self or for their fame or for attention so others will like them, so that their parents will think they're good Christians, so that their friends will think they're good Christians. Listen, you need to come to Christ. You need to give your life to Christ. Because if you don't, if pride or shame or the thought of other people thinking you're a hypocrite because now you've come to Christ, I thought you've been a Christian for 30 years, man. Where have you been? I've been lying and deceiving you. That's where I've been. But now I've come to repentance. Then come to repentance. I've had some people come to repentance after so long living a fake, phony life. And some people get mad at them. Oh, no, you've got to be a Christian. No, no, I wasn't. Oh, you had to be. You, you taught my kid in Sunday school. You know, you, you, you helped out in this ministry. I served with you. Yeah, but I was doing it for the wrong motives. No, you've got to be saved. I always wonder about the salvation of those people. I always wonder. So what does Jesus tell us here? Jesus has reminded us that God is watching us. He is looking at our life, all of our lives, to see if we produce fruit. Secondly, Jesus encourages us that if we look at our life and we don't see any fruit, it can be fixed right now while mercy remains. 
And you just need to cry out to Christ to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day. Trust him as your savior and he will change you into a fruit bearing tree. And third, Jesus warns us if we don't produce fruit, we will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't care what we call ourselves or how active we are. If we aren't doing the will of God from the heart out of love for God, because we desire to give him glory, we will be cut down regardless of what we call ourselves, regardless of what other people think about us. Charles Wesley was an ordained minister in the church of England. And he didn't know Christ. Think about that. Think of all the classes he went through, learned Hebrew, learned Greek, learned the Old Testament, learned the New Testament, memorized all that stuff, learned all the rules and procedures of the church, was pastoring a church, preaching sermons to people, preparing sermons from the word of God, and then became a Christian. Up to that point, he produced no fruit. Because if you, like Brody said, if you don't abide in Christ, you can do nothing. That doesn't mean you can't do anything that's sinful. You can only do things that are sinful. You just can't do anything for the glory of God until you have the spirit of God within you until you're obeying the word of God out of the right motives of the heart. And so that's what Wesley was. He was an unbelieving preacher and then came to Christ. And of course, he wrote many hymns. One is called Depth of Mercy. And I came across it and it it, it matches our text so perfectly. Let me just read it to you in closing depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God, his wrath forbear me, the chief of sinners spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his call, grieved him by a thousand falls. Now incline me to repent. Let me now my sins lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. There for me my Savior stands, holding forth his wounded hands. God is love. I know, I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. Oh, that is so good. Every moment you're not in hell is the mercy of God being extended to you that you might give your life to Christ. The whole sermon is directed at people who don't know Christ. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you. I would command you like the scriptures do to repent, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus for salvation. And then God, by his spirit, will transform you into a fruit bearing tree. Let's pray. Father, we just want to come before you thankful for Jesus' final admonition in this section as he stands before a great mixed multitude of religious, plastic, fruit-bearing, non-fruit-bearing people. Father, we are reminded of Peter's words that you are patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I pray that if there's someone here right now who realizes they need you, that they deserve the acts, that they would run to Christ. They would confess their sins. They would repent of their sins, turn from their sins and receive Jesus as their savior. Believe on Jesus, trust in Christ that you might change them, transform them into a fruit bearing tree for your glory. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus name. Amen.